Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on June the 22nd, 2011. For newcomers to this broadcast, then you should look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and help yourself to the audios which are available for free download. There's lots of them there and hopefully by the time you're finished, it'll take you some time by the way, and actually checked everything for yourselves uh, of what I'm talking about from the original sources, you'll have the shortcuts to understanding the big system, which is a superstructure around the world. It's above governments. It puts governments into power, and certainly the ones that you think are the presidents and prime ministers across the world. And they run the financial systems globally too. And you'll understand where they want to go with you, where your culture comes from, how it's going to be changed in the future to set the, to, to, to suit the next part of the agenda. And they've been doing this uh, little game for an awful long time, helped by the media, which is awfully, awfully nice to them by omitting what they're really up to, because the media is also owned by them, by the way. And, of course, most journalists today, the big journalists are members of the Council on Foreign Relations, that their bosses certainly are. And uh, that's how you're controlled. It's really by omission in all the stories you're getting so that you don't relate them to other stories and put things together for yourself. So I try to do that for you. You can help me going too by purchasing the books and discs I have for sale at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use a personal check or an international postal money order from your post office or you can send cash, or you can use PayPal. You'll see the donation button on the com site. Use that. Follow it with an email with name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. And remember, straight donations are very, very welcome as we plummet down the hill, and the dollar loses its purchasing power. In other words, you call it inflation. Uh, In other words, your your dollars, it can purchase less each time you, you go out to use it. That's what inflation really means. And across the rest of the world, you have Western Union if you want to purchase. You've got MoneyGram, and you have PayPal again to order using the donation button. And again, straight donations are certainly welcome. Now, I said last night that this part of the New World Order we're going through is just a stage. It's an ongoing New World Order, you understand. In fact, they talked about it there in the 1900s. This is the New World Order. At that time, they already had set the stage for at least a couple of world wars, and they hoped that would bring the countries under their, or to their knees so that they would give up their nationalism and the big corporate boys would take over and privatize everything and sell off the countries piece by piece until they hoped eventually there'd be no memory of nations, having a generation with no memory of nations. Well, it took them that long to get to where they are now, actually. They hoped to have achieved that at the end of World War Two, And... Um, and now they're selling off pieces of countries piecemeal. And eventually, they will raise a generation that will have no memory, especially from schooling, on what was before. And that was also what John Dewey, who helped set up the American educational system, suggested that all uh, 
all dissidents from the past, all anger from the past of people to people would have to be eliminated, so all history would have to go down the memory hall. And they have actually done that today with young students who really don't care about history whatsoever. It's too much fun on the net. And for the older ones, of course, as they always work it so well, uh, they're dying off, so they, they, they can't pass it on. And they also went through all the different revolutions. You understand, you're, you're post-revolutionary today. All the revolutions took place in the 20th century. That was the, the throwing out of everybody's constitution uh, across the planet, basically, by the globalists, and replacing placing it all with particular correct new norms. So if you understand what's happening, you're a counter-revolutionary, exactly what Stalin was chasing after the Bolshevists took over. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix and talking about post revolutionaries, because post-revolutionaries, or reactionaries as they call them, uh, react to the fact their countries have been taken over. And that's what, as I say, the people in Russia did when the Bolsheviks took over, and then the Bolsheviks went on a hunting spree to find them all and kill them off by the millions, continuously right down to when the Berlin Wall came down, basically. And that's again, it's a socialist society, that's what they call socialism. And we tend to refer to the communists as communists because the end result of communism was to be a utopia where they'd bred out all the unfit, you see, because they were actually socialists. It was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. That's what they called it, you see. Other people in the West called them communists. But it's socialists. The socialists who run the countries in the West now uh, try to pretend they're distant or distance. Uh, they've got a distance from the, the communist agenda, but it's the same group. They're a better, kinder socialist, you know. So, understand, we're now we're post-revolutionary and we're reactionary. We're the reactionaries because we understand how it was before, plus we understand what's happened up until now. And one other guy who understood this set himself on fire, and I've meant to read this for quite a few days, uh, because he was protesting uh, many parts of this new system where even the judiciary uh, doesn't go by law anymore. It goes by a second set of books. But what really goes by is, is um, uh, policies, new policies, you see, as opposed to law. And judges get sent off to get their lectures every so often uh, from feminism. They must go to lectures on, um, from child care workers and so on and so on to always vote in their favor. And that's the whole idea. So it's policy more than anything else. Whereas on the books, actually, nothing has changed. That doesn't help the victims. And I've said before that one of the socialist main goals, and the socialists, by the way, are backed by the big banks. If you don't believe me, look into the beginnings of the Fabian Society when one of the richest men in America went over with his wife to, to Britain to help start up and fund uh, the Fabian Society, which is a British socialist society that even Tony Blair is a member of and the Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, so why would a guy like that, uh, incredibly wealthy person, own banks across the planet, and go off to, to do this kind of thing? Well, it's because they like socialism. As I say, it's far better having nations all disciplined, regulated by officialdom and bureaucracy, which the taxpayer all pays for, by the way, uh, and 
and then you lend to the country, and then the country must send out the heavies to get the cash back from the public taxation. It saves the big bankers doing it. So that's why they love socialism, uh, a, a, a planned society where people don't revolt. They like peace and quiet and a public that just keeps paying up and they're told to dish out more. And uh, socialism brings that in. It's an authoritarian society, you see. Anyway, this guy in New Hampshire, and he sets himself alight uh, to protest America's decline and also put up the original article as well from the New Hampshire paper with the whole of this long, long explanation and letter the man put in it because he did his homework for about 20 years, apparently. He did his homework to find out all of these laws, and he said that they're not running on law at all. They're running on policies. Anyway, it's so near, near to Father's Day, that's why I think he did it too. What happened, basically, is that uh, um, one of, he, he, he was in the military. One of his children were acting up. Uh, in those days, you could give him a slap, and the mother, who already was in touch with social workers for a child that was, I don't know if it was autistic or whatever, uh, mentioned it to one of them, and next thing he knew, he was out the house, uh, his wife was separated from him, and his wife wanted to see him, but wasn't allowed to by the social workers. The children were taken away, and he ended up living in poverty with about 90% of his wages gar- garnished all of those years. And his wife also couldn't live in a very good lifestyle either by the time they're finished. So he was, he was telling them how they take over your entire life, uh, all of these agencies, which are private, by the way. They're private agencies, funded again by the taxpayer. Anyway, it says, last week, uh, Thomas James Ball reached his breaking point, driven to desperation by a system that bankrupted him and destroyed his family. Ball walked, to the main, uh, walked up to the main door of the Keene County, New Hampshire courthouse, doused himself with gasoline and lit himself ablaze. Hardly anyone seems to have noticed. Conversely, when a 26-year-old Tunisian man lit himself in fire a few months ago after police confiscated the fruits and vegetables he'd been selling without a permit, it launched a wave of revolution across the Middle East, so we're told, you see. People were shocked into taking... In other words, the media can make you think one way or another about any particular uh, item, even if they're similar. It launched a... Uh, it says, uh, we're shocked into taking action. Protests and riots swept the region, and one regime after another crumbled. Well, there's a lot more to it than that, because they planned those regimes in the Arab Spring a few years ago. It says, rather than sparking an American Spring and shocking U.S. citizens into taking their country back, uh, Mr. Ball's act of self-immolation seems to have been largely ignored. There's been scant coverage and scant as being extremely generous of Mr. Ball in the mainstream media, and what little coverage there is generally discredits the man as a troublemaker. This is how the system's gatekeepers have been so adroit at maintaining the status quo by suppressing dissident, marginalizing the detractors, and distracting the populace with meaningless, irrelevant drivel. Mr. Ball left behind a lengthy, lengthy missive prior to suicide, which covers a range of topics from political corruption to why the family court system in America is utterly disgraceful. He was, to put it mildly, a staunch advocate of violent change, and it's clear he hoped a great deal of others would follow in his footsteps to literally burn the system down. That's what he advocated, actually. He said, he said it's over for America, and they don't, if they don't know it, it's over. And it's been running, run from the top down. So he literally advocated burning all the buildings down where the big men who oversaw it all uh, sat. And as I say, I'll find the other article, the original one from New Hampshire and put it up and you can read it all first. It's quite lengthy, but the man certainly did his homework on the judicial system and it shows you how much 
chronology is involved in what you think uh, the political system and the judicial system actually is, plus the money that's involved too. There's always massive money involved. So it's interesting too, the state's motto is live free or die, and Ball chose the latter because you're not allowed to live free. So I'll put that up tonight with the original as well. This is from the Independent, and uh, uh, you can read it for yourselves. Also, people don't understand their own histories, as I've said before, because the winners always write the histories. And um, one thing that's never mentioned in schools at all in places like Scotland is the Highland Clearances, where literally uh, the boys in London wanted the Highlands cleared, literally, of all the peoples. And they, uh, they tried to foment some revolutions. Eventually there was a revolution, and uh, a handful of clans only joined it, but that was enough to give them an excuse to clear the highlands. Which, and it took over, well over 120, 30 years to clear the highlands by deporting all of these peoples. But, of course, that's kind of gone from history. There's one of these nasty little things that was just a misunderstanding, you know. And in Ireland it was the same too, because in Ireland people think that the Irish famine was due to a potato blight that from a ship that landed uh, from the States into uh, an Irish harbour and then dropped off the rest of the spuds in England. Finally, England never got the blight. Anyway, it wasn't nothing to do with that at all. It was because, Britain was, uh, because Ireland was already picked because of its lush farmland and, and its fantastic cattle raising. Uh, to be the breadbasket to supply the British troops across the empire. And the troops went in, the different regiments, and they slaughtered people if they wouldn't give up their cattle and so on. And they were all sent on board ships for months and months and months and shipped abroad. So the food was actually shipped out the country. In fact, when you go into the books of the period, there was more food shipped out of Ireland than ever before. And uh, there was nothing left for the ordinary people to live on. And that's what they call the Irish famine. I'll put a link up to that tonight to give you some of the history for those who want to read it at all. And it's got a link to the rest of the site if you if you go if you look at to resume etc. It'll take you to the rest of the site. It's well worth it to understand how history is totally nonsense. And we should know that too because we're living through history since since 9/11. You must know that what's all happened and all the consequences don't justify. Um, the, the actual events themselves, even though they're very scammy too. And uh, we're living through history, but we know it's official. The official policy is yada, yada, yada. We all know the official policy, and that's going to be the official history forever. Amen. That's how it's done. Oh, it's always been done that way. And um, it's interesting too to even look at uh, some of the, the articles that were published a long time ago by chief players to do with Ireland, for instance, I mean, Francis Bacon was one of the guys who was an advisor to royalty. And he says, we shall reclaim them from their barbarous manners. This is the Irish. Populate plants and make civil all the provinces of that kingdom, as we are persuaded that it is one of the chief causes for for which God hath brought us to the imperial crown of these kingdoms. So he thought it would be a great breadbasket even back then. They, They always knew that. And then John Winthrop uh, said this in uh, 1660, They enclose no land, neither have they any settled habitation, nor any tame cattle to improve the land by, and so have no other but a natural right to those countries. 
So that's how they validated taking it over by force over many centuries. And uh, it's interesting, that's the same argument, of course, they used for taking over, uh, taking the land off the American Indians. And then it says here, this is from Sir Joseph Banks on Bengal in India. It says that the latest posterity will wonder how their ancestors were able to exist without them and revere the names of their British conquerors to whom they will be indebted for the abolition of famine. That's what he said. I like Jonathan Swift myself. Because he was also in Parliament, British Parliament, and talking about the Irish. And when he was asked about them, he says, well, let them let them eat their children. It sounds just like the eugenicists today, doesn't it? And the guys that, you know, all these world United Nations organizations. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix. Now, we know the internet's going down and is to be policed and putting filters on in different countries. Australia was one of the first ones to start it off. I might touch on more of that tonight with Australia. And uh, Britain and other countries are following suit. But Ireland, again, has been hit first of all. It says 300 Irish internet users are wrongfully received first strike notices. False accusations have long been a subject for those skeptical of a three-strikes law. Given the complexity of, tr- of tying an IP address to a subscriber, it's much too complicated for any form of automated system. It should come as no surprise for skeptics to find out that many people are wrongfully receiving notices for copyright infringement. Then he goes on to tell you how it works and all the rest of it, and the companies that are actually uh, agreeing to go along with these three-strikes law. And then it goes on to tell you how anyone can hijack your, your IP address and how anyone on Wi-Fi can have that uh, whacked as well and someone else will use it. But they even mention here that uh, they've even tried with copyright uh, infringement on printers. So uh, eventually you understand you only have cops coming into your home on a routine basis. Everybody will, will get cops coming into their home to go through your computer and your printer and all the rest of the stuff. And your whole house search to see if you've copied anything at all that supposedly was a copyright infringement. So, uh, I mean, I know the whole agenda, so I'm not going to even get hung up on it on the start of it. And you can train the public to do anything, as you know today, uh, especially the young ones. They're, they're, they, they don't mind having no privacy at all, apparently. In fact, they're only too happy to put everything that they're doing daily up on Facebook and MySpace. So they all think nothing of it at all. Now, um, another thing they're doing too is what I've said for years. The easiest way to get people off the roads, which is the big plan, by the way, off the rural areas, is to simply put the prices up so much, especially with gasoline or petrol, as they call it in some countries, and uh, you can't drive anymore. And then your wife will say, well, well, we should move into the city, and eventually you'll have no option but to do so. And so they've they've jacked it up in Britain, especially in Scotland. This is from the Herald Scotland, and it says that uh, the cost will stop rural drivers from visiting family. They'll stop a lot getting to work as well. Nearly one-third of drivers in rural areas say they would be forced to stop visiting family and friends. The cost of fuel continues to rise, a survey by the Royal uh, Automobile uh, Corporation found. 
Its annual report on monitoring today highlights the impact of soaring petrol and diesel prices, revealing almost half of drivers are cutting back on long-distance journeys for financial reasons, which the governments all know. I read an article on one, I don't know if it was Mother's Day or whoever's day it was, and it was a long weekend, not, not long ago, and the government says, well, at least I'll keep most of the people off the road with the high cost of gasoline. So they, were, they wanted this. This goes on to say, however, the impact has been the greatest in the countryside where drivers said they have no alternative to using the car in order to make essential journeys. The motoring organization found if fuel costs continue to go up, 31% of rural drivers said they would give up visiting family and friends, compared to 26% of those in urban areas. A similar division emerged in drivers' ability to use their car less. 86% of those surveyed in rural areas said this would be very difficult compared to 69% in cities. The RSC said that their poor illustrated the polarised effect of high fuel prices in urban and rural areas. Now, Agenda 21 goes right through the whole thing of de-urbanisation and, and eventually they said the United Nations would only be about 3% left on the rural areas, and those folk would be very, very wealthy people. In other words, it will be the high bureaucrats, just like the Soviet system had, who will get to live in the rural areas. So we're, we're well on track to how it's supposed to go, and the power of the purse, of course, is the easiest way to do it, along with legislation. Quite simple, isn't it, to, to run people. They don't seem to question much, and most folk don't question much. 15 million Britons, that's one in four, are now listed on a new national police database. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? Land of hope and glory, they used to sing. <laughs> As is a quarter of the population will have their names logged on a new national police database. Due to go live next week, the police national database is being loaded up with 15 million records of criminals, suspects and victims. Created in the wake of the Soham murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman in 2002, it's hoped the database will stop criminals like killer caretaker Ian Huntley slipping through the net. Now, that's utter rubbish. It's for the whole population eventually, and it will go to the whole population. They're also privatizing, basically, a form, a new form of uh, really the, a, a, a British-based FBI-type system, American-type system, for the police, uh, with all these different departments working together, the same as the U.S. do, again, to stop all of the criminal gangs, they said. That's a different article, but it ties in with this one. It says, but it's feared that ordinary members of the public could find their personal details are logged alongside those of murderers, rapists, and burglars. One critic said chief constables must give a cast-iron guarantee that the names of the innocent will not be stored on the database. Now, Curtis, who puts a lot of documentaries out in Britain, has already done one, and another guy did another one, on people who've had their names put on mistakenly on uh, databases. And even though they tell them it's off, it's never off. And they can't even get jobs. Even youngsters who've never left school and could not have been the adult that committed the crime, doesn't matter, that's stuck on the database for the rest of your natural existence. And that's the world that they're, they're bringing in. It's all by design, as you well know. I hope you all understand that a totalitarian society must must have all the information daily on everybody to make sure you're not changing your habits, to find out why you're changing your habits. You must be predictable. Back with more after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix. Now, I've mentioned before that at the Nuremberg trial, and people don't even know the history of Nuremberg trial and how literally Bernays was involved in that again. And a whole bunch of his friends in Hollywood were asked to come in and set up this trial to portray forever to the public this was a black and white issue and to show the guys, the, uh, the Nazis, as the, as the bad guys and the white guys were all the, the judges, etc. Black and white, simple as that. And, of course, nothing was further from the truth because when any of them tried to talk, the internal tapes were kept in private collections. You're not allowed to see them. There's been, I think, one person managed to put some of it up. But when asked about eugenics and sterilization and the killing off of the unfit, uh, the, the, the Germans said uh, that they copied uh, the, the British and American system of socialism. And people don't realize that, that uh, Cold Spring Harbor was one of the first places they set up in New York to, uh, to study. It was actually set up with the help of the, 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 the Cattle Ranch Farms Association to use those same eugenical techniques to breed the perfect people and kill off the ones just like animals that just weren't up to par. And that went on for many, many years. The Rockefeller Foundation took it over, and it lasted many, many years. How many? This article here is about the victims of forced sterilization in the U.S., which, uh, again, Hitler was copying. And it says here, uh, victims of North Carolina forced sterilization program tell their stories. Now, I've given previous exposés on this particular one, but this is a, a more recent update. It says, several victims of North Carolina's nearly five-decade-long forced sterilization program testified Wednesday to a board deciding how to compensate people whose ability to have children was taken away from them in the name of improving society. Again, through this uh, legal system that that guy sets himself on fire for going through a new policy rather than law, you see. Nearly 3,000 of roughly 7,600 North Car- uh, Carolinians sterilized between 1929 and 1975 are still alive. The Eugenics Task Force is considering where they should be given money or other types of assistance. And it gives you examples of different people who were given sterilization. Uh, someone as young as, eight, as 13 years. One of them says, uh, she says, they cut me open like I was a dog. A hog, she says, a sobbing riddick said, my body was far too young for what they did. Other victims said that they were lied to about the purpose of the surgery. The same technique, by the way, the umbrella organizations that work under the auspices of the United Nations and go abroad and do all the sterilizations abroad like they did in um, Peru and other places. Uh, I read the articles on the air. Thousands were sterilized. They told the women this was a temporary thing and could be reversed. Same lies. You know. Mary Frances Smith, English, said a physician laughed at her when she told him she was getting married and wanted the procedure reversed. Her doctors told her a few years earlier that the procedure was a way for her not to worry about birth control. When you go through something like that, you don't get over it, Smith, English, said. Charles Holt wept quietly as Melissa Hyatt a woman who adopted him as her father, related to sterilization experience. Holt was institutionalized at the Murdoch Developmental Center in Butner as a teen and was told he could get out and return home if he underwent a surgery. There's blackmail for you. Well, you can get home as long as we can do some little surgery on you. Charles has the ability to be a great father, but that ability was taken away from him at an early age, Hyatt said, adding that the experience led to Holt's drinking problem. 
33 states in the U.S. adopted eugenics programs in the early 1900s out of a belief that humanity could evolve, again, his evolution, you see, and society be improved, improvement in the stock, by breeding out undesirable characteristics. That system, you better believe, is alive and well. And you're, if all, all your DNA has been checked, your family histories have all been checked, believe you me, they know who they want and who they don't want in the coming society. I hope you understand that. And you're helping them, you know, with your friends and Facebook and all that rubbish. Most states and other countries abandoned such efforts after World War II because of similarities with Nazi Germany's programs for racial purity. North Carolina's eugenics program expanded, however, with sterilization speaking in the 1950s and early 1960s. Rationalization ranged from protecting the potential offspring of mentally disabled patients to improving the overall health and intellectual competence of the human race. North Carolina had the most open-ended law in the country, allowing doctors and social workers, here you go again, to refer people living at home. Just like social workers refer people in, in school. I, I think he's maybe ADHD, you know, and he asks questions all the time. So let's get some drugs into him. Same thing. If you can't kill them off or sterilize them, just, just shrink their brain. That's what the drugs do. In other states, people had to be either institutionalized or jailed, jailed before they could be sterilized. Most of the victims were mental health patients, prisoners, poor, or people the state deemed to be promiscuous. Imagine this day and age, eh? Roughly 85% were women or girls, some as young as 10 years of age. So it gives you more and more uh, different victims here and so on and what went on. And you better believe it's alive and well. Only they want to bring down most of the useless eaters now. That's the ones who have never quite made the multi-millionaire class. And I am not kidding about that, too, because that's one of the criteria of being the fit today is to get up into the well-moneyed class, hold on to it for at least three generations, and then your offspring are fit to join them and get in on the, the, the real agenda to go on in the future with their own progeny. Now, I got to laugh, too, at some of the exposés and trivia and rubbish that the media puts out, because so much of it, too. This article here is like, is, so suddenly they've just discovered uh, that uh, porn, pop porn, like music porn, will damage a generation of children. Like not, after it's all done, <laughs> that they've just noticed it. <laughs> Mike Stock of Legendary's 80s songwriting trio Stock, Aitken and Waterman is worried about the sexual imagery and innuendos in modern pop music. Everybody's grown up with it, you know. Mike Stock is, it says, the recent uh, final of Britain's Got Talent was broadcast at 7.30 p.m. on a Saturday evening featuring two finalists who were 11 and 12 years old and was watched by millions of children about the same age or even younger. Yet the producers still thought it appropriate that the guest star Nicole uh, Scherzinger, formerly of the raunchy band and the Pussycat Dolls, was dressed in a knicker-skimming mini-dress, bumping and grinding her hips suggestively through her latest hit while sing, singing, Come on, baby, put your hands on my body, Right there. Well, there's a lot worse out there for the last 25 odd years, believe you me. But they've just noticed this. They've just noticed, eh? <laughs> Her whispering, I like it dirty, seems as unsurprising as it was superfluous and was, suffice to say, wholly inappropriate for the program's family audience. I love this, this kind of stuff when, when they, they have this indignancy, you know, about 30 years too late. <laughs> Because they have. I mean, the, the whole intention was to raise a generation of massive promiscuity, as, as Julian Huxley said, way back in the 50s, by the way. 
when he was CEO of UNESCO and also on the head of uh, family planning for abortions all over the planet at the same time. He says it's okay as long as they don't uh, have children, but they won't bond if they have lots of partners. I've gone through many of the articles from the bigwigs about that too. So, as I say, this, this kind of article is kind of fluff when they, when they go on about it in this day and age. And I have to mention this article, which I just touched on last night. I didn't get a chance to read it. But I've mentioned before how every group is used. That's why the love groups, and some of the top socialists have said that, help to create groups of all kinds. The Tavistock Institute, in fact, one of its main jobs, which it started off very early when it came into the U.S. in the 1930s, uh, was to try and get revolution gone, but they said there wasn't enough uh, suffering in the U.S. to get a, the crowds, the vast majority of people, to revolt. So what they said, we'll create groups, uh, e- even gender differences and sub-gender differences, etc., etc., and eventually we'll bring all these ones together uh, for certain uh, protests and so on. And that's why they really push for the, for the gay and lesbian groups and all the rest of it, so they can all use them. And also to, to blur the lines of what any kind of normality could be, because gays and lesbians traditionally don't have children. I mean, I can remember when the first uh, uh, lesbian uh, marches through Britain were going on, uh, demanding women's rights, you know. And they were dressed in dungarees and boots, and they were kind of tubby-looking. And um, I, I asked as a child, I says, why are lesbians who don't really like men... Uh, standing up for the women's rights. Why aren't the women standing up for the rights? Why would lesbians... Well, this was all funded, of course, by the big organizations like Tavistock and, of course, by your government money because you could have radical protests for radical changes to get grants. And all your, your countries that signed on at the end of World War II, the United Nations, accepted that deal. Only, only one agenda, folks. So this guy, uh, he's a guy, a white guy impersonating lesbian bloggers it says it wants everything but burdens. And it says here, In the media business, we frequently use the maxim, three makes a trend. So far, I haven't heard about another white heterosexual man passing as, I say, as say, a Syrian lesbian or deaf lesbian mother of two. But I'm sure one will emerge in the next ten minutes. In the meantime, for you folks who have been too busy being a member of a systematically oppressed group, allow me to recap. On February the 19th, shortly before Syria's Arab Spring uprisings began, an American-born Syrian lesbian named, named Amina Abdullah Araf launched a gay girl in Damascus. Apparently it was a popular site. It was to, it was to, the whole idea was to get everybody so enraged, all the groups enraged in the, in the Western world, uh, the gays and lesbians, that they'd, they'd tell their governments, and, yeah, go and bomb them, go and bomb them. They're persecuting people over there. So Araf had been posting comments and debating Middle Eastern politics online for years. Now remember, there's more to the story, because this so-called heterosexual man, which I kind of query not to be, you know, put it down, but the fact is he also could, under, could speak fluent the language as well. He probably was CIA. Anyway, created her own space at the urging of Paula Brooks, co-founder of the news site Les Get Real. Les Get Real. So here's uh, this guy working with uh, Les Get Real. Aras blog featured her erotic poetry and her coming out story, risky material since homosexuality is illegal in Syria. She also spread news of government's brutal crackdown on protesters, prompting Time.com to call her an honest and reflective voice of the revolution. In late April, Araf claimed that Syrian security forces visited her father's home and accused her of conspiring against the state. 
urging armed uprising and working with foreign elements. Subsequent posts found Araf going underground, although she was still able to encourage other women in Syria to be more upfront. Via an email interview with CBSnews.com. So it's on all major media, right? Last week, a cousin posted a dramatic account of Araf's abduction by three armed men. Like the rest of the gay girl in Damascus, that entry is now unavailable to the public because it's all bogus. <laughs> because they're human beings, members of the LBGT and progressive blogosphere took to Twitter, Facebook and petition sites demanding information and protection for Araf. Days later, the bloggers catfish-style caper unraveled due to skeptical tweets from an NPR reporter. News of fake photos on Araf's Facebook page and an unnerving interview with a Montreal woman Araf had seduced via Facebook. (laughs) On Sunday, the Washington Post revealed Araf to be Tom McMaster, a white 40-year-old from Virginia who was raised a Mennonite and attends a graduate program at the University of Edinburgh. At this point, McMaster should have just have said, I've come down with a terrible case of white male privilege. Please medicate me. Instead, in the first several pseudo-apologies, he revealed his dreams of a fiction career. Ever since I was a child, he says, I've wanted to write fiction, but when my first attempts met with universal rejection, which means it's rubbish, I took a more serious look at my own work and realized that I could not write conversation in a natural way, nor could I convincingly write characters who weren't me. i got to be me, right? I tried to get better and did various exercises, such as simply copying overhead overhead heard conversations. Eventually, I would set up a number of profiles on dating sites with identities that were not my own as ways of interacting with real people in conversation, but with a different personality than my own. In other words, he was acting as a woman and stuff like that. And he wanted some Middle East romanticizing. But in reality, of course, it was to get all the different groups protesting governments and getting them to get in there to help these poor guys uh, or people or women or, or whatever that were being persecuted. See how it works. Every group is used. Every group is used. They love groups in socialism. They just love them. And now Monsanto, Monsanto, it's bad enough we're getting sprayed to death because now weather manipulation is a perfect, perfect daily Science that's used is perfect and it's daily. We've had it steadily now since 98 on a daily basis across the world, uh, often more heavy across cities, according to people I know, and different air companies. And uh, But you can smell this stuff, you can taste it sometimes, and of course the, they're causing rain and, and so on. In fact, they're flooding out parts of Canada right now, especially the breadbasket. I understand the same thing's happening in the U.S., very late planting their seeds, and then today they're flooding us again. But the aircraft are still busy up above, spraying away. So they will bring on the food shortage. But regardless, uh, scientists warn of link between dangerous new pathogen and Monsanto's Roundup. This is another expose on the same, but they've already found out. A plant pathologist experienced in protecting against biological warfare recently warned the USDA of a new self-replicating microfungal virus-sized organism which may be causing spontaneous abortions in livestock, sudden death syndrome in Monsanto's Roundup, ready soy, and wilt in Monsanto's RR corn. What's it doing to humans, eh? We're mammals, too. 
Dr. Ron M. Huber, who coordinates the Emergent Diseases and Pathogens Committee of the American uh, Phytopathological Society as part of the USDA National Plant Disease Recovery System, warned Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack that this pathogen threatens the U.S. food and feed supply and can lead to the collapse of the U.S. corn and soy export markets. Likewise, uh, deregulation of GE alfalfa could be a calamity, he noted in his letter, reproduced in full below. So the whole letter is here. So on January 27th, Vilsack gave blanket approval to all genetically modified alfalfa, following orders from President Obama. He also removed buffer zone requirements. That means they can plant them all next to all organically grown stuff and, and so on, without telling anybody else it's there. So it blows across and contaminates everything. This is seen as a deliberate move to contaminate natural crops and destroy the organic meat and dairy industry, which relies on GM-free alfalfa. Such a genetic contamination will give the biotech industry complete control over the nation's fourth largest crop. It will also ease the transition to using GE alfalfa as a biofuel. This is my letter to Secretary Vilsack with a request to allocate necessary resources to understand potential nutrient disease interactions before making, in my opinion, an essentially irreversible decision on deregulation of RR Alpha, Huber told Food Freedom in an email. But he cautions, although the organism has been associated with infertility, isn't that wonderful? It's, it's all coincidence, you understand, for the, the ones who still want to use Facebook and MySpace. Uh, it says, and spontaneous abortions in animals, and no doubt people too. Associations are not always evidence of cause in all cases and do not indicate what the predisposing conditions might be. Uh, these need to be established through thorough investigation, which requires a commitment of resources. Now, it's against the law for any other corporation, rather than the ones with the patents on these seeds, to do the investigations and testing on them. So it's all their own way. But this is an agenda, folks. It's working very well. People are tired, sick, and got lots of cancers. Depopulation. And they're sterile, too. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back and cutting through the matrix and I'm going to go to the callers now, but just before it, I'll put a, another link up tonight. It's called Pennsylvania County Rejects Agenda 21. And uh, they went through the ICLEI membership, International Council of Local Environment Initiatives. That's the guys working on Agenda 21 and all your councils. And they've got some pretty well out, so I'll put a link up too. You should all follow suit, by the way, and get these sods out of there. Now, we'll go to Brandon in California, if he's still there. Are you there, Brandon? Hey, Alan. How are you tonight? Not too bad. I'm, I'm shrinking, actually, with all the rain. Yeah, Yeah, that might be helping out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to make a quick comment about the separation between the older generations and the younger generations like mine. A lot of the people that I work with that are younger, like my age, when we'll have an older person come up to us and explain to us how what it was like for them, how it was to grew up in their time, a lot of people, they don't want to hear it. They don't, they feel like it's rubbish. They feel like there's no reason to, to listen to them. Mm-hmm. But when I, I, I do take the time to listen and I hear these like outrageous things about how homosexuality wasn't even talked about, mm-hmm. let alone put on television or in magazines or movies. Yeah. Or uh, there was a lady who had an extended family, a large family, and she said she couldn't get on the bus with her kids without people telling her to get on birth control. Yeah. Without people yeah. telling her, 
you need to stop and think about what you're doing to the to the planet and how we can't support all these families. And this was in the 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. and no one wants to listen to how slowly we're we're being trained to not listen to that. Absolutely. That was that was then. That this is now. See, back back then, it doesn't matter if you're heteros, heterosexual or or, or whatever. Um, uh, the fact is, whatever people did in their own bedrooms, nobody cared about, as long as they were not doing it in the streets. <laughs> I mean, that's all you care about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so, so why it's been raised up to a special category, and this is the whole thing, it's special categories, and of course special hiring and special everything. And this, this is a diff- this is not uh, democracy, believe you me. Yeah. yeah. No, and uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it astonished me that they had so much of this and from reading the books you've you've uh, showed us, showed me about, or watching some of the the talks you've had and lectures from other people, hearing about their plans and their agenda, and then hearing how it was worked out through that generation, mm-hmm. and then no one wants to hear it. No, not anybody of my age group cares. And you see it through television, you see it in magazines. These old people, old geezers, what do they know? You know, we need to put them away, put them in a home, things like that. That's right, and, and that has been literally officially. Discuss the fact that they would destroy the relationship b- between the younger and the elder, and uh, and they would actually fire lots of teachers once they were hitting about 35, and got younger and younger ones. So the children would identify more with the, with the younger teachers, and part of their toolkits was too to ridicule the previous societies, so that they would not never listen. In fact, one of the, one of the slogans they had during the uh, for the Communist Party in the States, or it's really called the Socialist Party, but they called Communist. Uh, was don't don't believe anybody over 30. Yeah. yeah. And nowadays, I see in, within my generation, there's a huge premium on younger teachers. A lot of the kids I went to high school with are becoming teachers at an earlier and earlier age. I know yeah. back when I was younger, I would see people trying to do it, and they wouldn't be teachers until their 30s. Now I know people who are younger than me, 24, 23, who are teachers now. That's right. And it's astonishing to see that. And you see, and I've seen it through through kindergarten when... My my teachers when I was younger were old were old much older than I was mm-hmm. much older than my parents for that matter and then now when I when I've gone back to school for different events or different things I see these teachers are younger are younger or as young as me and it's it's it, it's really crazy. Well, that's also what Stalin said. That said that the first ones you must take care of are the teachers and the police and the military. And he said with with the teachers, he said that they're the managers for the next generation, so they must be perfectly conditioned themselves first, and the older ones must be put out of the business. So it's the same same policy. Well, thanks for taking my call. Out. Thanks for calling. Uh, for the rest, Larry, Dan, and Mike, please call back tomorrow. Maybe I'll see you then. So from Hamish myself, from a very wet and sprayed Ontario, Canada, where I've got yellow puddles, by the way, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.